0: Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Career. I'm your host Jennifer Ong and in this podcast, I interview people who have taken a leap of faith and pursued an alternative career path in Asia. Before I get started with today's episode, I just want to let you guys know I do have a one-on-one career coaching program. So if you're feeling not too fulfilled and not too happy at your corporate job, don't know what else you'd want to do, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at ongjennifer underscore or via LinkedIn. I'd love to see how I can help. I am also sharing my three-step framework to help you find your passion. It's a framework that's helped me and my clients in numerous industries from finance, tech, law, consulting, and more, identify and build a career that's true to them. Want it? Check out the notes to today's episode. All right, let's get into today's episode. Today's is a continuation of my conversation with Lauren. So if you missed part one, head on over to listen to that part first. In this second part of the episode, we continue the conversation and we talk about how she started Cocoon, how she went about finding her first clients, how she went about fundraising and also hiring. All right, I'll hand over to Lauren now to share the second part of her story. How did you come up with the idea of cocoon and how did you get reconnected with um, your co-founder kind of tell us the the story there yeah yeah so mahima and i had been tossing around
1: ideas for years on startups and i will say um you know because we lived in new york together she was at morgan stanley i was at goldman you know how it is. Sometimes you have a bad day at work and you kind of just want to rant to somebody. So she was definitely one of my uh, friends who i go out for dinner with and be like, oh, like, let me tell you what happened today. And we're like, one day we'll be starting our own company and we'll have to deal with this. And so anyway, a lot of our ideas, you know, were, were, we're both also foodies. So we had a lot of food ideas. And eventually I joined Stripe and then a few months, or maybe a year or so later, Mahima at the time had joined Bond Street, which was this really cool um, tech startup in New York that was doing small business lending. And later she ended up coming out to Silicon Valley because Bond Street got, funny enough, acquired by Goldman, And she was like, well, not going back to that. (laughs) So she was like, I'm gonna come out here. Um, So she ended up at Square. And, and, And so anyway, because we were again in the same place in the same industry, we kept talking and we're just like someday let's start a company together, and so it was lucky that we were ready, so to speak, around the same time where I was kind of like around that four and a half year market stripe, and I was very much in the mode of mm, like I'm I've built up this amazing skill set, whether it's fundraising, whether it's thinking about pricing, whether it's sales, um, partnerships, and now I'm kind of feeling like I'm ready to start a company. And then Mahima at the time was also kind of in a similar mode. And so from that perspective, we both knew we wanted to explore starting a company together. And the domain was actually kind of driven by our, I would say a combination of our personal experiences where both of us, you know, um, I think just naturally given our stage of life, Mahima has a six month old now, Uh, I'm expecting our first child in a few months. And so we and a lot of our friends happen to be at this stage of life around thinking about the next step, becoming parents for the first time, and San Francisco and the Bay Area being the way it is, very difficult to raise a family here because of anywhere, but especially here because of just how financially difficult it is, frankly, and so we kind of had this idea that there was an opportunity to help people like us who were starting families with the financial challenges of raising a family and so this could be you know affording childcare. this could be setting up a will or life insurance or college savings accounts for example and 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 part of the reason we were interested in that particular angle was because of our fintech background so you know being at stripe mahima being at square we were like that's perfect for us because we're you know we're the user we're excited about changing this for ourselves and our friends and um people people who are starting families all over the country knowing that it's a difficult thing to do and we have the expertise from the fintech world so that set us on this path of talking to a bunch of recent parents and To give the very high level of what Cocoon does, basically what Cocoon is focused on is how do we take all the stress, the work, and the anxiety out of leave. So anytime folks need time off from work because they're having a baby or someone in their family is sick or they're going in for a surgery or some kind of sickness happens to, to yourself, for example, and you need time away to recover, to spend time with caring for someone else, um, and also it's really important that you get paid during that time. Our you know, job as Cocoon is to make that experience instant, simple, and magically easy for both the, our customers, the HR teams who handle that from a legal compliance, payroll insurance aspect, and for the end user, kind of like you and me, people who need leave, make it super easy to get your time off without this crazy kind of trying to navigate all these crazy regulations and insurance claims. And so that's what we do in a nutshell, which is, by the way, pretty different from what we thought we were gonna work on, right? Because um, we, are, we are selling B2B software. We're not selling a consumer financial product in any way, uh, at least not yet, though who knows, right, where this takes us. But what was cool about that journey, at least in the sort of like early user research days, was we were like, oh, we're interested in this particular kind of community. We wanna help parents and people with families, and we wanna do it through our FinTech backgrounds. And so in talking to a lot of these first users, our, our first user interviews, a lot of them were just our friends. They were people who had had kids recently. And so that's when we started realizing there was this really interesting theme that was popping up around people being like, oh, well, you know, for sure I'm thinking about wills and thinking about life insurance and thinking about 529s, college savings accounts in the US. But the thing that is actually on fire, broken right now is that I still haven't been paid for my parental leave. And so we were like, huh, that is really strange. Tell us more. And so they were like, oh, well, you know, like I applied for this insurance and I still haven't gotten paid. And we had this one friend who was on the legal team with Mahima who was telling us how she was being willed into her hospital room to have her cesarean um, for her birth. And she literally brought her laptop with her to apply for disability insurance to get paid. Yeah. And then not only that, but she was going without, with only part of her paycheck for the first, you know, month, month and a half of her leave because. While her company Square was paying her, she still hadn't gotten a check from the state of California or her disability insurance carrier who were supposed to be paying her the remainder of the balance to get her to 100% of her salary. And here she is, you know juggling baby childcare expenses, paying her mortgage on for, you know half her pay, essentially. And so we were like, wow, that is really messed up. What's going on there? We talked to a bunch more people who had similar stories and so it started to become a theme and we realized it was really really painful for those people and then we started talking to these hr leaders who were well, was just starting with the people that we knew so i talked to the head of benefits at stripe um uh lindsay who is who is uh, hopefully soon to become a customer uh, of ours um at her new company but and then we talked to the head of benefits at square and a bunch of other folks that we got connected to and we were like so why is this so bad for people i mean clearly you don't want this to be bad because having such a important life experience go wrong someone's pay you know be messed up for example or to be make it so difficult for someone while having a baby or someone's family member has cancer just clearly that's not what what you want right and they would tell us they would give us all these insights around wow well well certainly that's not the experience that we would want for our people but let me tell you about how difficult it is for us to manage this because of all these regulations across different you know federal state county level regulations that we have to figure out and interpret and figure out how to execute on and all these different sources of pay from insurance and state and Um, We have to figure out what we owe as an employer and then how do we operationalize that in terms of our payroll system and so forth. And so we quickly realized this was a really big problem that no one was really tackling in a way that would actually take the burden off both the employee and the employer and make it magically easy. And so that's what ended up leading us to build what Cocoon is today.
0: So again, I think that that's so cool that it started off with like a general topic or a general interest area that you guys wanted to look into. And then through the customer interviews, you then really honed in on exactly what the pain point were. Like you thought maybe there was something in like insurance space or something in like saving up for college for your kids that you could potentially address. But then it ended up being like, oh, I should know this leave thing is really the thing that is like on fire as you said that's the biggest problem that people need to be solved right now and that's how you then um decided that this was going to be the direction of of the company totally yeah and and so i wanted to to ask you as well like it sounds like you and bahima were really good friends and have been friends for a long time and i know co-founder relationships are always something that um, people are like oh yeah be careful like it could be really mm. bad this and that mm. so when you guys were assessing whether or not you should start a company together especially cuz you guys were friends first mm-hmm. and foremost mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what were some things that you guys were thinking about when you guys were deciding if you wanted to to work together that is such a good question and
1: absolutely critical by the way is just diligencing that you're right for each other from a co-founder perspective so for us i think that that was definitely really key because while you know we knew each other for you know by by that point 10 years right as friends we hadn't really worked together in a super super meaningful way other than being interns together working on this startup pitch competition together and and of course you know i think the cool part about doing sort of early exploratory work as as potential co-founders is that you also get a flavor of how you work together as well so that was part of it so very much recommend that Anyone that you are considering being becoming a co-founder with, that you almost have like a trial period, so to speak, where you work together on something very meaningful. Ideally, the actual company, um, but without necessarily becoming co-founders quite yet. So maybe it's just user research, right? And so you get a flavor of how you work together, which is which. which for us, was a blast. We loved it, um, and. And so that that's important. And then the other thing that I really, really suggest doing is making sure that you diligence your values and your shared values. And so we did this actually through a resource that First Round, one of our current investors put out called, um, actually that was written by a friend of mine, Gloria Lynn, who is, um, was one of the first PMs at Stripe and later started her own company. She went through this really incredible experience finding her co-founder. I think she dated like a hundred potential co-founders, something very large like that. But from her experience distilled it down to here are 50 questions for co-founder dating, the 50 most essential questions. And what was most useful for us was really focusing on the questions related to values and how you want this experience to look like, because there's, there's different ways to start a company, right? So as an example, um, there's a version of a startup where you work 24 seven, you eat ramen and or Soylent, nothing against that, but I'm a foodie, so that's not okay. <laughs> and, um, and you barely sleep and it comes at the expense of your health and your family. Um, Sometimes that works out and it's, and, it, and things go great. And for me, that was not the kind of company that I wanted to start for myself or for any of our people. And Mahima was very similar. And so and and so I think part of it's like, not not to say we don't work hard. We work incredibly hard, but we are very cognizant of the people in our lives and and where we want to spend our time and and our health and wellness and and what that looks like too. And so that was really important to know about each other that because if, if one person has the expectation that's like, oh, you know, who cares about your husband or your, your kid or your parents in town, doesn't matter, um, expecting the other person to drop everything and be working on the company, then that is a very different expectation than like, of course, we work on the company and we're we're building this together and we're in this for the long term. And also like when my parent is in town that we spend quality time together or, you know, when you have a baby <laughs> that, um, you know, we can support each other through that, right? And so that's really important to make sure that we know about each other ahead of time. Um, so I'd say that's, the, that's probably the most important thing followed by, I would say, just some of the more tactical things in terms of just kind of having the open conversations around what are the things you love doing and are really good at and are those compatible with each other, right? And so I think for Mahima and me um, and also um, Amber, who's our third co-founder, who I had worked together at Stripe with. Uh, it was really important that we did this kind of like conversation together and also figured out, okay, what if the three of us were to work together, what would we each kind of gravitate towards, right? Like how are our skill sets complementary and where do they overlap? And if they overlap, how do we, or um, let's say we both are interested in working on product, for example, how do we divide and conquer? And like, where do we be where do I sort of like let you lead versus I
0: lead? And so I wanted to ask, because you mentioned that you were, you had a lot of experience in terms of like hiring, recruiting. And I know putting together the, not just like the co-founder relationship is important, but also putting together that first set of um, employees is also super crucial. Do you have any tips around around that? Yeah,
1: yeah. Oh gosh, um, recruiting. Probably the most important skill set for a founder. Even now, if I think if I were to become a VC, the number one thing I would look for is, do I think this person could recruit a hundred other people? And 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 so, in terms of tips there, I'd say honestly, if if you can find yourself be embedded in a community like Stripe. For example, the reason why people throw around these terms like stripe mafia, et cetera, or PayPal Mafia, Square Mafia, what what have you, is because it's actually true, which is that you're just surrounded by this pool of talented people who you've built something together with, and and the diversity and depth of them is mind-boggling at these at these types of companies. And so I would say um i think for the first few people we exclusively pulled from our network i mean it was people who we had worked with before and were like i know that person is phenomenal so a couple examples of um of the of these people so as an example um sterling who leads our support team was one of the most phenomenal people i worked with at stripe on support and when I saw he had left Stripe, I was like, must reach out to him. He trained over 2,000 Stripes on how to have that empathetic and really helpful um, tone towards our customers and users. And, and then another really amazing person um, from Stripe was Brianna, who um, is now kind of leading a lot of our work on our payments product. And um, Brianna and I first met when I was on our finance team and she was an accountant. She was she was like this super badass, like amazing accountant on the team who later became um, a TPM at Stripe and like went on to do amazing things. Uh, so I, I knew her skill set. Another person on our team, Kristen, who was one of our first product managers. Kristen, actually, I got to know through my nonprofit, uh, Gen Dream, where Kristen was one of the first coaches in our social entrepreneurship program for high schoolers. And I was blown away by her. And I was like, oh my gosh, this woman is so capable, has so much potential, is so articulate. Where did she come from? (laughs) It's amazing. Um, So I knew when I was starting Cocoon, I was like, okay, like bringing her along too. And so I would say for the first couple people, really tapping into your network is both really smart from a you've kind of pre-vetted these people right and also much easier to do because you have this sort of like trust and it's like doing warm sales right because they know who you are they know your reputation your capabilities and so when you reach out to them and are like hey do you want to follow me along this wild journey of starting a company that might not exist in a year? They're like, sure. <laughs> you know, it's much more likely for that to be the case than if it was someone you didn't know at all.
0: And I think that that's such a uh, a good way of thinking about it. It's like, Hey, actually joining one of these companies with really, you know, am- amazing people that they hire from could be a really good way for you to then um, meet a lot of interesting people and find potential co-founders or even like founding team members um, to bring on to your company. But I think the other big question I have for you is, how do you convince them to join, right? Like they've got this like mm. awesome, cool job at Stripe and uh, probably pays them really well. And they're like, oh, come join me in this like thing that may not exist, <laughs> but we're doing yes. cool things like come. <laughs> how did how did you convince them um, to, jo- to, 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 to jump ship?
1: Yeah, I would say, two biggest things one is mission purpose and that's actually probably the biggest thing honestly which is once you reach a certain threshold of comfort from an income level i think most of us are actually just interested in having a mission and purpose in life right that really resonates and so for us kind of sharing that mission and that purpose of of, wow, how can we help people during these biggest moments in their lives that can be really happy and intense, like having a baby, or can be one of the saddest, most stressful, most difficult experiences of your life, like seeing a parent pass away, for example. How can we help take all that stress and anxiety and the craziness of all this insurance and, and, um, and regulation out of the equation and make it better for people. And and that really resonated and with with our, you know, team. And so I think honing sort of like why you're working on this and being able to share that really authentically and very crisply with your potential early team members and all team members really is super important. That's that's, I would say, the number one thing. And then besides that, I would say, being able to paint a vision for where the company is going from a scale perspective, both because people care about impact, which is ideally they wanna be helping not just a few people or a few hundred people or a few thousand people, but ideally they wanna be like, wow, I have the potential to help millions of people. So being able to share that vision of how are you going to get there when you have maybe like one customer or two customers. Right. What is that vision? Right. Is really important. And that ties in very naturally to the financial incentive, which is, well, we're not going to be paying you as much as what you might be paid at Stripe or Square. Right. From a salary perspective. But let me tell you about the equity story. Right. And with the kind of impact and the millions of people are gonna be reaching and and helping, what does that mean financially? And where does this go long-term? And getting them so excited about that, right? Such that all the stars align where they're like, I'm so passionate about the mission, I see the impact, and this could be a career-defining experience for me, not only from a personal growth and maybe career growth perspective, but also financially too.
0: I'm interrupting my very own episode to let you guys know that I have a one-on-one career coaching program designed to help you go from lost and frustrated with your corporate job to living and crushing it in your dream career. Do you feel fulfilled and unhappy at your job despite landing this perfect, prestigious, perfect on paper job? Are you great at chasing and acing other people's dreams but have no idea what your own dreams and goals are? Well, if this sounds like you, I am sharing my three-step framework to help you find your passion today. Want it? Check out the show notes to today's episode to download the free guide now. All right, back to the episode. What about in your early days? Like how did you find that very first customer? Mm,
1: Yes, this goes back to what we talked about in terms of targeted outbound. So we knew that the market around leave was very much empty. Below companies that were 5,000 people or 10,000 people pretty much didn't have any solutions because these existing insurance carriers or leave providers out there who were kind of HR outsourcing companies were targeting these very large companies like Facebook, American Express, Johnson & Johnson, for example, because very expensive to staff these giant call centers and claims examiners who were servicing anything but a very large company because you need economies of scale to make it work financially. And so we knew that down market companies that were a few hundred to a few thousand people didn't really have any good solutions. Most of them were just doing this in-house in terms of their HR teams, struggling to figure out different regulations, navigating insurance, figuring out how to pay their people, trying to handhold their people through this really difficult time. And so we, and and we also knew that on top of that, tech companies tend to be early adopters of new ideas and new technology. Plus our network was there. So that was kind of a confluence of factors. So with that in mind, we basically put together a list of pretty much all the venture-funded tech companies in the Bay Area who we had personal connections to, um, whether it was through kind of early investors or literally friends. So a good example of this is one of our early, earliest customers, um, Mural, um, the head of people there, uh, Adriana Roche. She, I got to know through Peregrine, my husband's cousin who started Segment and she used to be head of people at Segment. So, um, some of these connections are just like through any, it could be through anything, um, but we found our first two customers through our investors. So um, we were lucky to get introduced to Carta. Um, Charlie Kievers, the CFO at Carta through one of our uh, early angel investors. Uh, and then we got introduced to the head of people, Meg Mokloo at Benchling through another one of our early um, pre-seed seed investors. And they were the ones who kind of became our first buyers, right? So um, Charlie introduced us to Adam Jackson who ran Total Rewards at Carta. Adam at the time was looking for a solution, had tried so many solutions, could never find anything that worked for them that was helping their people. In fact, they were so stuck that they were still paying their people 100% out of pocket instead of having their people and themselves figure out how to use these different insurance sources they were paying into, so they were giving up, you know, potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars um, because they they hadn't yet found the right solution. We became that solution for them, and amazing because at the time we had no product. We literally had a prototype that was a Figma mock, essentially, and they were willing to sign a contract on that. Um, and, and just speaks to the finding your early adopters too, right? people who are going to be the kind of people who are like, wow, I believe in that so much. I am going to buy this thing that doesn't exist yet. Um, and then the other person that did that for us was uh, Vivek at Benchling, um, Vivek and Carrie. Um, so got to know them through Meg and they were going through this massive scaling phase and we're like, we need this. Um, this is becoming very difficult for us, and we're willing to take a leap of faith on, on us because they saw the vision for what it could be. So those were our first two customers. And then from there, it wasn't easy to get our first 10 or first 20 or first 30, but it was easier because with, with at least two kind of big names like Carta and Benchling that people admired it became easier to get notion it became easier to get snapdocs it became easier to get mural and um you know many of our other early customers and 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 so eventually we built more and more of a brand presence through these customers and they through word of mouth started just talking about us and so that led to kind of the growth that we we saw um Uh, And and honestly, a lot of it's just thanks to the word of mouth and evangelism of our of our earliest believers.
0: That's awesome. Um, And I wanted to shift gears a little bit to talk about fundraising. So Uh. I know that you guys closed like a Series A. um, Mm. And I wanted to ask, did you guys fundraise prior to? starting the company or as in like prior to quitting your jobs and so like the fundraising helped in terms of giving you a bit of like a financial buffer or did this come later where you were like okay we've got like you know the kind of like a prototype going on we've got like interest in customer like customers who's signing on with interest and now okay we need to like actually hire like the engineers to like fully build this out and whatever um and so now we need to go uh fundraise where did the yeah. fundraising conversation happen Um, in in this whole process
1: that's a great question so for us um we raised a pre-seed round like a very small pre-seed before i had uh, actually left stripe and so what that meant was that we wouldn't necessarily be funding the company out of our own pockets um so mahima had already quit uh, square before then she had left square back in february um, and then we had done our pre-seed in June. So at the time, Mahima kind of did that as effectively a solo founder, right, at the time. Um, because I was, of course, like very deep in the process, but hadn't actually officially come out, come come as a co-founder yet. Um, although, of course, you know, our investors knew that I was kind of in the picture. But um, so for us, I think what was important was that, we wanted the flexibility to be able to not spend like tons of money, but to to be able to confidently spend on things that we thought we would need to to get the business off the ground without having to dip into our own personal pockets too deeply. I mean, we certainly were willing to sort of like not take much of a salary at all in the beginning. Um, But we wanted to be able to for example like spent on legal fees as an example which can be really expensive right so like when we first had our when we first had um carta say hey we're interested in becoming customers send over the MSA we're like yeah sure okay how do we get a contract like <laughs> you know and so it was great that we could go i mean we I'm sure we could have figured it out ourselves too but it was great that we were able to go to Cooley, our you know lawyer, and say, "Hey, can you put together a contract? And here's all the different parameters, and can you put together a privacy policy and all of that stuff, and not worry about the fact that they cost thousand dollars an hour, right? Um, which would have which would have slowed us down. So it was really just a speed thing, um, which is not to say that you couldn't do that yourself or do it more affordably, but you can move so much faster when you have even a little bit of funding. And then, um, certainly funding becomes increasingly important once you want to hire, which for us was not till down the road because we didn't really, um, I would say between Mahima, Amber, and me, we had this pretty great starter package of people who could build the product and sell the product. And, and so we kind of didn't necessarily hire until, um, early 2021, as far as our first kind of business and engineering hires.
0: And for that initial batch of investors, like the initial like angel investors, were those relationships that you guys had like before? Like you've met people in the industry and you kind of just like tapped into that, that into like those connections again?
1: Yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the early investors were people who we knew in some way. Um, and then uh, some of them were actually just like, personal investments for personal passion reasons. So um, we had some angel investors who invested because they just had a horrible leave experience actually. Um, and then, and we, um, you know, they were also at tech companies and so they sort of like had the means and also were interested in angel investing too. And then there are other people who just were kind of like loosely in our network in some way. So. As an example, um, Mahima, my co-founder, had met Mark uh, through kind of like the Brown Alumni Network. And so Mark was an early angel, later, you know, led our seed in our Series A. And so a lot of it was kind of like people that were in our network more broadly who we got to know or got introduced to. Um, Bill, who led uh, co-led our seed, was actually the um a a good friend and had previously worked with uh our preceded investors um uh the xyz team and so it's all kind of like one part of what's fun about silicon valley is that it's all kind of like one giant network
0: got it got it um and i guess I, i also wanted to ask you with the macro kind of macro conditions kind of changing right now um how has that changed in terms of, of fundraising? And is that something that you guys are are worried about as well?
1: Yeah, great question. It absolutely has changed landscape and fundraising in a pretty meaningful way in a very short time frame. So I would say even if you rewound a few months, it was still a very hot fundraising environment, especially for growth stage companies. But now, not to say that that's um, not doable, but from everything we hear from sort of like the broader investment community, these kind of like growth stage fundraises, whether it's, you know, series B, C, D, et cetera, very, very difficult. The, the environment is pretty frozen, more or less. Um, earlier stages is, is still pretty active so but so there's been a pretty dramatic change and um and it could last for some amount of time so you know when when things first started kind of going um from like a macro environment or financial just markets in terms of the public markets first started going down um a few months ago a a lot of our early investors and and you you may have also heard of some of these vc firms like sequoia and so forth putting out these memos and Decks advising their founders, but the the whole advice was like, make sure that you can ride this out for the long term because, or you know, medium term because, yes, this could be a six month thing. But more likely, it could be a twelve month thing, it could be a three year thing. So, for example, at the time, I went to this talk by David Sachs, and he was like, well, um, post dot com boom, PayPal was, you know, he was a PayPal at the time it was kind of the nuclear winter scenario where fundraising was kind of frozen for three years, which is crazy to think about. Um, and they managed to PayPal at a time managed to scrap together this fundraising round from like a bunch of very creative sources. But the whole point was be very, very thoughtful about how you're going to, um, sort of like make sure that you're set up well to ride through potential downturn. Um, and also, Make sure that your sort of like metrics reflect that, right? So, unlikely that you're going to get to cash flow positive as a startup, an early stage company. But what do strong metrics look like for companies that investors want to fund during a downturn, right? And so, it used to be a few months ago that it was growth at all cost, where, you know, as long as you were growing massively, nobody really cared what your margins were or what your burn was and so you saw companies kind of like focus on growth but now it's a little bit more so hey it's all about sort of like how efficient are you in that growth and what is your burn multiple what is your gross margin and so it just puts a different focus on the business um i think thankfully for us we raised a a a very meaningful um, series a at, a at a good time and so we are extremely well capitalized and set up for the long term which is fantastic um, and then a, it's a good place to be yeah and then I think as stewards of the business we know that you know I think what we think about are things like maybe a few months ago we would have said hey let's hire a lot more aggressively and um, really pump the growth engine versus today. I think it's a more even balance between that growth, for example, and doing it in a way that is very um, sustainable from a business perspective in terms of margin and investment.
0: That leads me to my next question, which is what's next for you guys at Cocoon?
1: Mm, That is a great question. So a couple things that are top of mind. We are very much looking to innovate in the space of pay and making pay as seamless as possible. So one of the most painful things about going on leave is that because a lot of folks don't realize, you know, you're actually paid from many times these different sources like insurance, in some cases, government entities that take forever, to process your insurance claim and cut you a snail mail check, it can be very painful to go on leave because even though you might eventually get paid, you're still having to figure out how to you know, bridge the gap and pay your mortgage and maybe make childcare down payments while you're waiting for weeks for a check to come in. And so one of the things we're super excited about that we uh, launched recently is a product called Forward Pay. Which really makes it super seamless for an employer to essentially kind of provide funding to an employee during a leave covering the first couple of weeks of their leave and essentially front load the amount of money that someone gets such that while they're waiting for these insurance checks to come and these government checks to come, they're not going with a significantly reduced pay. And so that reduces a lot of the stress and the anxiety when you're having a baby or you're going through a surgery or something big is happening in your family. And we're so excited to do a lot more there. We see so many ways we can transform the insurance industry, for example, where today, like, why should it take weeks to process your claim and mail you a snail mail check? Why can't that be instant, right? Um, how can we make that instant, for example? Um, how can we make it such that, for example, people who don't get pay um, at a hundred percent, who don't work for an employer who's incredibly generous, like Benchling or Mural or Carda, um, or some of our customers, like you know Khan Academy, et cetera, if you're not lucky enough to work for one of these companies, but I mean, you work for sort of the average company who doesn't pay you maybe anything and all you can get is from your insurance or from your state, for example, then what options do you have, right? What if there were a button in the Cocoon dashboard that just said, top me up to 100%. Let me borrow that money from my company or from Cocoon, maybe, and maybe I can pay it back over time as I return to work once I get my income going again. And so what are these ways that we can innovate to take that stress, that anxiety, that cash flow gap, off people's minds as this big hurdle to why maybe they wouldn't take the time off to care for their family or themselves or their their baby for example um so that's something that we're really excited about and then the other thing that's really big yeah yeah and then the other thing that's really big and top of mind it goes back to our mission um of how do we how do we expand access to this to more people um, is really about expanding into other industries where today a lot of our customers are companies you know like Carta or Benchling or Affirm um, and these companies that have really incredibly generous benefits and and people who work for these companies are are generally pretty well off but what if we could help people who work in construction or retail or work in manufacturing or our dental assistants or security guards. That's also a lot of what's top of mind for us. We think about what's next is how do we bring awareness and access to these people um, who have a lot fewer kind of benefits and, and privileges than we do.
0: That's amazing. That's, that's so, so cool. And I'm so excited to see, you know, that what what's next for, for you guys. And I feel like I also combined some of like that FinTech background that you guys have um, into, mm-hmm. into the next stage of the company as well. Um, so I know we've spoken a lot, um, a long, a long time already, actually. Um, so I thought I'd just wrap up the interview with one last question for you, which is if you were to give yourself or, or, or honestly, generally, um, people advice on their career and people who are thinking about starting their own company. What would you have told yourself back then before you embarked on this journey as an as an entrepreneur? Mm. Oh, gosh. So many
1: things. There's tactical things. But I, I think maybe back to the theme of kind of what's come out of our conversation, Jen, is... You don't need to have all the answers. In fact, you shouldn't have all the answers um, or the path to where you are going to go is rarely going to ever look like it's a straight line. And actually, it's a lot of these little incremental things along the way that we're going to build to that. And so I think the advice that I would give myself if I were to think about Lauren as a freshman in college or a high schooler or something like that would be really being open to trying something more deeply when you have an inkling that you're, you really like it. Um, and so for me, it started out as being like this little exposure of this startup competition that led to taking a CS class that led to going on this really cool innovation, Harvard business school trip. And more and and then let to me moving to silicon valley and joining stripe and then lets to me ch- trying sales and and more, and more and more and more and more and then you're like oh yeah that is the thing that i want to do next and so i think it doesn't have to be something where you know sometimes we hear these stories about founders who i think maybe the class classic example that everyone feels like is the founder story is the story about Um, you know, when I was a kid, I had such and such thing happen to me. And from then on, I knew that I wanted to cure cancer (laughs) or whatever it is. And that does exist. But that wasn't my story. And I don't think it needs to be someone's, it doesn't need to be everyone's story in any way. And so I think trusting that you can go on a discovery process for yourself and, Knowing that it, it might be a many years-long discovery experience too. And being open to that and being open to change is I think the biggest advice that I'd give.
0: That's amazing. Thank you so much, Lauren, for spending the time sharing so much about your own personal career and also all the things that you've been doing at, at Cocoon. I'm so excited to see what's next for for you. And thank you so much for, for your time today.
1: Thank you for having me, Jen.
0: And there you have it, the second part of my conversation with Lauren. Here's a couple key takeaways that I got from this conversation. One, if your ultimate goal is to be an entrepreneur, while you are an employee, identify the skills you need to start a company. Lauren identifies sales to be an important part of starting a business, and so she positioned herself to move into business development at Stripe to really learn and hone those skills. Two, Through user research interviews, oftentimes the solution, the product, and the company you build will actually start to form. Lauren and her co-founder identified a customer type that they wanted to serve initially and just got to know them inside out and see what their pain points were. And ultimately, they were able to build a company around solving those problems. Three, when it comes to sales, go in with a consultant mindset rather than a sales mindset. When it came to signing their very first client, it really started off as just a conversation to understand the client's pain point. And that eventually evolved into a solution and sales pitch. Also, Lauren's tip is to leverage as many warm leads as you can. Don't underestimate the power of your network and don't stop building your network. And lastly, Lauren's final piece of advice is just do it. A lot of this, you will figure out on the job and be able to learn it while you are doing. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Control Alt Career. Check back in two weeks time for my conversation with the founder of SenRev, a direct-to-consumer leather goods brand loved by celebrities globally. And if you liked today's episode, do share this with two friends who maybe aren't so happy with their corporate job and need a little extra inspiration. And of course, if you're interested in getting some career coaching, feel free to reach out to me or follow me on Instagram at ongjennifer underscore for more information. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. I'll see you guys back here in two weeks.